two weeks ago, um, we started our new study in systematic theology. We, are, we kind of took a new step in systematic theology. We talked about revelation. We talked about this fact that we have a God who is self-revealing, self-disclosing, man, that God wanted to remain distant to us, that God wanted to may, remain mysterious to us, absent from us. He could have done that, but God being the gracious God that he has done, he, he, that he is, has chosen <clears throat> to reveal himself so that we might know him, so that we might be saved by him, so that we might enter into relationship with him and overcome our sin through him. Uh, and so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to take that a step further. We're going to talk about the types of revelation. There are really two types of revelation that we find throughout the scriptures. And uh, most of this stuff you'll know, but hopefully this will just kind of help you have the categories and know how to, how to put that together and know how to state it. All right, so this won't be new stuff to you. It'll just be a, a new way of thinking about things you already probably realize, all right? So let's read through Psalm 19 together. And I think in Psalm 19, we see two different ways that God speaks to us, these two different types of revelation. All right, so starting in verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Speech goes out through all the earth, and there are words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, so did you guys, did anybody pick up on the two different ways that God speaks to us in Psalm 19? Anybody? Or just one of the ways that God speaks to us that you see in Psalm 19. His handiwork, right? So through through his creation, in other words, right? He says, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. That the sky is, is preaching. The sky is proclaiming. That's the same word used in the Bible for the word preach proclamation, the sky, the heavens, the stars, all of it, preaching, proclaiming the glory of God, proclaiming the existence of God, proclaiming the attributes of God. Now, do you see the other way that Psalm 19 says God speaks to us? What's that? Exactly, that's right, through his word, through his specific word, right? It talks repeatedly about that, especially in verses 
um, 7 through 11. It talks about the law of the Lord. It talks about the testimony of the Lord. It talks about the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, the warnings of the Lord. And so all of these things are very specific, aren't they? These are not the, this, we're not talking about the heavens, we're not talking about the stars, we're not talking about this, this grand creation preaching to us, we're talking about exact words, we're talking about the law, we're talking about precepts that have been given to us by God. And there are the two categories of revelation that we find. We have general revelation, general revelation being the creation, the handiwork, proclaiming it from the sky, and then we have special revelation, that which has been specifically given to us by God, that which is in human language, words literally that we can hear and words that we can read and words that we can memorize. And so in Psalm 19, we see this beautiful picture of how God doesn't just choose one way to reveal himself to us, but he chooses two, multiple ways to reveal himself to us. So first, let's look at general revelation. When we talk about general revelation, what we're talking about is the revelation that is generally made available to all people and is general in substance. So it's universal in scope. Here's what that means. is It means regardless of when you were born, regardless of if you were raised in 1800s or the 1200s or a thousand years B.C. or if you're living right now and you're driving a car with air conditioning in it, you see this. Regardless of what what uh, geographical place that you live in, whether it be America or it be Iraq or it be Africa or South America, regardless of geographically of where you are, you see this, that, that these things are universally seen by all people. These things are universally accessible and universally available to all people. The, this is the way that God reveals himself to everyone and every generation all over the place. And it's not just universal in scope, though, it's general in substance. So when we talk about this, um, this general revelation, what we're talking about is not really the specific things about God. Rather, we're talking about the, the general truths about God. We're talking about that God exists, right? If you look around the creation and you look around the world that we live in, and we even look at one another, to me, it's pretty clear that the only logical conclusion, if we are, are truly rational and we are truly logical, is to conclude that there is a designer, that there, that there is a creator, that there is a builder. The illustration that I like to use is um, if you were to go out and we were to look at just any car in the parking lot, we were to look at my truck. We see this truck there, and it's obvious to us that the truck is not an accident. It's obvious to us that the truck didn't just poof out of, out of thin air and come out of nothing. Now, we've never seen the people that build it, built it. We don't know the people that built it. We've never talked to the people that built it. We've never shook the hands of the people that built it. But we know that somewhere there was a designer that put all the plans together. There was an engineer or a team of engineers that figured out every intricate part uh, of the truck. And then there was an assembly line that each piece went by and the thing was put together and assembled and made piece by piece by piece. And then boom, there's a truck. Even though we've never seen the engineers, and even though we've never seen the assembly line workers, and even though we've never seen the mechanics, we know that they exist. And we know that they exist because we see the evidence of their work. It's the same thing with God, isn't it? We look around and we see how all of the ecosystems fit together. We look around and we see how the solar system is, is perfectly in balance and how we're the exact distance that we need to be from the sun. And we 
we look at our, our bodies physically even and how there's just these machines that, that heal themselves and, and take care of themselves and intellectually know what to do and, and there are all these things just fit together and we look at all of this and the only logical conclusion is that somewhere there's an engineer. Somewhere there's a builder. Somewhere there's a designer. And so that is one of the things when we look at these general truths about God, when we look at this the creation and we look at one another, we're able to see that somewhere there is a God. Somewhere there is a creator. He does exist. We're able to see his power, aren't we? That if there is a God and there is a creator and we see the expanse of the earth and we see the the uh, the intricacies of the earth that whoever this creator is must be big and he must be strong we see his wisdom and the logical nature of the way things come together just the fact that we can have scientific laws Um, i think it was francis schaeffer who said that that christianity is the soil in which modern science was cultivated because it was christianity that was the first religion that said there are absolutes there is a, there are absolute, that God is absolute. You can always bank on Him. That He built systems in which the world on which the world functions. And because there are absolutes, and because God is absolute, then there must be laws of nature that are absolute that we can learn. And so, if you think about it, all of the fact that we can we have um, the law of thermodynamics, and we have the law of gravity, and we have all of these laws, all of these go back to the fact. Somewhere there is absolute truth. Somewhere there is an absolute creator. And so we see the wisdom of God and how all of those things fit together and how all of those things work. And, and you don't have to even be a Christian to, to see that and to acknowledge that. We see that God is creative in nature. That, that God isn't just content just to sit idly by. That God wants to create things. And that's one of the reasons that we like to create things and that we like to build things and that, well, that we like beautiful things is because we are made in the image of a God that is creative, that we can look around our world and see how beautiful it is. And see, if, if you think about human beauty is always built to complement God's beauty, isn't it? You ever thought about that? You, you go to Panama City Beach and you drive down the strip and what do you see? Human beauty. These huge, enormous skyscrapers. And what are all the skyscrapers built to do? These high rises built to do? They're built to go and look at what God did. And so as beautiful of things as we can build and as amazing of things that we can build, they pale in comparison to the way that God builds them and to the beauty that God puts into the world. We can even learn his deity, that he himself is God by looking at general revelation. But we don't learn everything. There are limitations to general, to general revelation. We don't learn the will of God. We don't learn the personality of God. We don't learn the nature of God. We don't learn the desires of God. We can't learn those things from general revelation. So let's read, turn with me in your Bible if you have it, to Romans chapter 1. I think this is a really important verse for us to answer a lot of questions that people normally have. And this is a difficult, this is a difficult verse, but it speaks to the nature of general revelation. I'm just going to read verses 19 and 20. It says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. So what Paul says to the Romans is that in the creation, God has revealed himself. And God has revealed himself so much so that we ought to be able to see him there. God has revealed himself so in creation that we ought to know that we need him. He has revealed himself so that we ought to, we ought to want him and go to him and run after him. But because of sin, we're blinded to it. We're spiritually blind. That's part of the problem of our spiritual blindness is we're unaware of these things. Or at least we're unaware of them in any specific kind of way. I think it's important for us just to realize as we think about these things, as we think about general revelation, as we think about Paul's words in Romans 1 here, that atheists are made and not born. Atheists are made and not born. Eternity is written on the hearts of men. And so what you find is, is that the natural tendency, you think the earliest civilizations, they all have, in some sense, religion, right? They all have some type of belief system that they all build around, even though they, uh, these were, the, the, the Bible wasn't going around, they had something. And so what our society is convincing us of is that this is what's normal, this is what's natural. But the truth is, is an atheist has to be created, an atheist has to be convinced, an atheist has to be persuaded, and they have to do that in rebellion to the revelation of God, in rebellion to what we see in the world around us, in defiance of what I believe is true logic and true rationale. Because God's glory and God's greatness are clearly known, and they're, they're seen everywhere around us. I wanted to, uh, I, I had some pictures to put up on the TV, but it didn't, Wi-Fi thing's not working tonight. Um, and so what I want us to do is just, just, for just a second, is talk about some of the things that we see in creation, and talk about perhaps what it is that we, where we, where it is that we should see God. And there's no wrong answers here. Okay, um, the the goal here is for us to begin seeing God everywhere. For us, as we drive down the road and we see the mountains, to see God there. To as we go to the ocean and see the ocean, to see see God there. To see as spring comes in and everything comes to life, to seeing. God there. So let's let's just talk about a few of these, and I know some of y'all are like, you know, sad, but humor me a little bit, all right? Work with me here, people. Some of you have taught some classes and all that kind of stuff, and you wouldn't want this kind of students, all right? So, start. we'll start with an easy one, all right? I'm going to throw you a softball here. A rainbow. When you see a rainbow, what might that say to us about God? It's got Genesis 6, 6 and 7. It's an amazing That our God is a promise-making God, and our God is not just a promise-making God, but he's a promise-keeping God, right? So every time we see a rainbow, we are reminded that that is from the Lord, that is a seal on his covenant, that he will keep his word to us, that he doesn't make empty threats, and he doesn't make give us empty promises, that he loves us more than that. Absolutely, and, and by the way, these are great, if, if you have children or grandchildren, these are great teaching tools. Um, as you're driving and you see a rainbow, that's how you have, that, that's the easiest way to have a family devotion. Just driving down the road and you see a rainbow and you say, hey, what, is, what does that say to us about the Lord? It teaches us about God's promises. And we, we could tell them the story of Noah. It's a great, it's a great opportunity 
It's very easy and unawkward. All right, stars. What do stars teach us about the glory of God? Or the nature of God? What's that? Absolutely. That God is immeasurable, right? That we, we can look and we can count and count and count and count. And we can measure. That's good. Something else maybe that stars teach us. Pretty, absolutely, that, that God is the supreme beauty of the universe, absolutely, that we might see them and uh, recognize God's beauty even in, absolutely, that God doesn't leave us wondering in the dark, right? Amen, absolutely, and how powerful must he be? Anything else from stars? Psalm 147 talks about how God knows every one of them by name. That as numerous as they are and as expansive as they are, that our God is so omniscient, that our God is so sovereign that he knows all of them. He places them there and he knows every one of them by name. What's that? What about the waves? You're at the ocean and you're you're watching the waves as they come into the ocean. What might that say to us about God? That's what he says in Psalm 89, that he says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God is in control of the waves. And, and, and by the way, what we're doing here is thinking like a Hebrew, all right? If you, if you remember when we talked about hermeneutic stone, we talked about like um, the wisdom literature and the poetry of the Bible and how the Jewish people, they think figuratively. And, and so when we're, we're talking this way, this is how they, this is how they were trained to perceive God. Yeah, the waves certainly, if you think about Job 38, and and God responds to Job when he says, did you tell the oceans where to stop? I did. Where was my counselor? Who told me how to do that? When I think of the waves, I think a lot of times of the faithfulness of God. Right? They keep coming, they keep coming, they keep coming, right? They're unwavering. They, they just come one after the other, never stop. And it always reminds me of, of God's faithfulness. It keeps coming, it keeps coming. It's God's faithfulness toward us is relentless. What about the sunrise? What might the sunrise say about God to us? Absolutely. So it helps us even think about the difference between God and evil, right, even, yeah, what's something else a a sunrise might remind us of, fresh start, yeah, absolutely, in the Lord, in the gospel, all of us, we get a new day, don't we, 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 get a, we get a new heart, and with a new heart, we get a new day. And all of the old has passed, the old has gone away, and the new has come, right? We're a new creation in Christ. Absolutely. What else, what else might a sunrise say? That's right. That's right. That's right. 
One day we know that the trumpet will sound, and in the eastern sky, there he will be, right? And every morning the sun rises from the east. Uh, Habakkuk uh, 3.4 talks about how the glory of God is like the radiance of the sun. How in, when you, when you think about the warmth and the brightness and how it's so bright on, on the brightest days you can't even look directly at it. That, we can, that, that just gives us a glimpse of how glorious God is and how holy God is and how stunning he is and his warmth. We think again about the faithfulness of God, how the sun is so, so consistent that we set our calendars by it. It's so consistent that we set our clocks by it, right? The beauty of God in a sunrise, absolutely. What about a rock? You ever been blessed by a rock? You ever sit and stare at a rock? If you haven't, you haven't deer hunted enough. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Spoken like a lady. <laughs> so, so, and don't, don't think pebble, think rock. All right, so what might a rock say to us about the Lord? What's that? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. The rocks will cry out to him, right? Yeah, foundation. This past week we talked about that, that if anyone does these words of mine, his house is built on the rock, right? That he, that he is the foundation that will, not, that will not cave in the storm. The Psalms talk about God being the rock and the redeemer, God being the refuge, right? That, that you, can, you can almost think of it like a, like a cave if you're out in the woods and you're hiking and camping um, and... You know, a tornado blows up, man, that's where you want to be, right? Because nothing blows over the rock. Nothing hurts the rock. And so you get under the rock. It's a refuge for you. All right, last one. What about mountains? If you were to look out and you were to see the mountains, what might that reveal about God to us? How might we see him there? Isaiah 40 says that God can hold the dirt of the mountains in a bucket. So it teaches of, of his might for, cer- for certain, doesn't it? What else might they say? You ever stood on top of a mountain? Felt how small you are? You, you, you see and you, you stand on top of this mountain, you feel like you're on top of the world, but if you were in an airplane, you'd, never, you'd see the mountain, but you wouldn't see you, right? It reminds us that our God is so big, and we are so small, and yet he loves us, and he knows us, and he knows the number of hairs that are on our heads, the days of our lives, the plans that he has made for us, right? God's word tells us that uh, if we had the fate of a, mount, a mustard seed, right, that we could go and tell, tell the mountain, jump in the ocean, and the mountain would jump in the ocean because God controls and commands the mountains. And so if we will open our eyes, if we will open our eyes as we walk around this world, we'll see God everywhere. We'll see God clearly revealed through people that we meet, through the personalities that we interact with, through the creation that we drive through. And God has, has generally revealed himself to those in all things. Now, what's hard about that is because of it, 
we're held accountable, right? Know what he says? That we are without excuse. That because he has revealed himself through creation, that those who live in the world in rebellion to him, those who live and are not in Christ, they, they are without excuse because he has revealed himself and they have rejected him and rebelled against him. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But there's another way that God speaks to us through general revelation. I don't know that we're going to get to see it all the way through the end tonight. But he also speaks to us through the conscience, right? There's, there's, that's the other part of general revelation. We have the creation and we have the conscience. Let's look in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We'll just read verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even, uh, accuse or even excuse them. So here's what he says. He says, essentially, all of us, whether we are born in America or in Iraq, regardless of what are, if we had good parents or no parents, that there's a sense in which the, the word of God has been planted in our hearts, the law of God. And what, what we really should think about here is, is kind of the moral law, right? We should think about in the context of, of like the Ten Commandments. If you go through every society on the planet right now and every society in the history of the planet, they are all governed by some system of of rules, right? If you, I don't know if any of you ever had to read Lord of uh, the Lord of Flies in in high school or college, but essentially they they all and they they crash on this island and then what happens? Eventually they all build up a government system that's essentially like the one that they left, and it's just part of the human condition and it's part of the fact that we have been born with God's sense of morality morality planted into our hearts. The Ten Commandments are in there, even though perhaps they are sometimes covered up uh, or or, or even ignored. And we should think about our conscience as more than merely a sense of right and wrong. It's bigger than that. It's that the law of God himself is actually there. The law is there. The law is on the heart of the Gentile. The The law is on the heart of the pagan. So the law is not just some some abstract sense of right and wrong. It's it's the law. It's actually on your heart. There are some things that we all know are universally um, are are universally disproved in every society, right? So stealing, you'll never go to uh, a country, you'll never go to a civilization, you'll never go to a village in Africa or Canada or secular Europe, you'll never go to any of them and somebody say, ah, stealing around here is cool. We're good with that. Nobody likes that. Nobody's on board with that. And that's part of the law of God being planted in your heart. Uh, murder. Every society always condemns murderers, right? Every society always deals harshly with them. Adultery. Every society deals harshly with, with those that, that have affairs and do things like that, right? And that, that, is, that is not looked positively, positively upon in any society. We look all the way back to the time of David and, and how all of that broke down. And so we know that I think the, maybe the best illustration that you could think of is if you think back to, the, to World War II and you think to, about the, uh, the trials, the, the war trials that went on post-Nazi Germany. And they bring all of these Nazi men up that had committed just some of the worst atrocities in the history of humankind. And every single nation 
from all different types of, of backgrounds, with all different types of religions, with all different types of worldviews, every single nation affirmed that what they had done was evil. They were all in agreement. Oh, we can never agree on anything. But we can agree that the slaughter that happened at concentration camps and the, the wickedness that was happening throughout Nazi Journal, everybody could agree that that was wickedness. Why could they do that? Because God has planted a sense of morality into your heart. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Animals don't have that. You don't see a bear devouring a, a, a salmon and, and, and feeling bad about it. You, you don't see uh, a, a hawk coming and catching a snake and then mourning the death of the snake. Only humans have the sense of morality. And it's because God has, has written it onto our hearts and God has placed it into our conscience. And so we see that God's moral nature is revealed through our worldview, our, our moral nature. And so when we think about the effectiveness of general revelation, here's what we can know, is that it's able to provide for us the truth of God that's that's sufficient enough to hold us accountable. We know that from Romans 1, right? That they are without excuse. And so general revelation tells us enough about God that keeps us from being, that, that causes us to be held accountable to him. That leaves us, in other words, without excuse, as Paul says. But it is not sufficient to provide people the good news of how they can escape the judgment of condemnation. So we read Romans 1, and there's no hope there, right? There's no optimism. There's no optimism in any way in Romans 1. It just says they're without excuse. They should see him, they don't see him. If you, if you keep reading in Romans 1, it talks about how, how humans tend to worship things that they build, and how humans tend to worship things that are made out of wood. And that's what we do, isn't it? And, and if you think back to what you know about other religions, that's what they do. They, they worship these things built with, with human hands. And so there's no optimism in Romans 1. There's no optimism until you get to Romans 3. You start in Romans 3, it says, none are good, none are seeking after God, none are wanting God. But God came after us, and God, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory, He comes, and though He is just, He is also the justifier, so that we might be justified in our sin through Him, so that He might make us right. And then it goes to Romans 10, and what does Romans 10 says? Because there's no hope in Romans 1, the only hope is in Romans 3. We who have experienced Romans 3 must go and take Romans 3 to the rest of the world. We must go and tell people that they have fallen short of the glory of God. We must go and tell people that they are not good, but there is a God that is good. That there is a God that is so good that has come and taken their place, who satisfied his own justice by being the justifier himself. And so we see that, that that is not efficacious for the salvation of other people. Now here, the, the difficult question that a lot of people ask, and it's called uh, inclusivism, is a lot of people want, want us to believe that um, if we don't go, like if someone never hears the gospel, that somehow they can look at the creation and be saved. And the truth is, is you just can't. That, that's, an, that's an insult to the cross. That's an insult to Christ because Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That John 10 tells us that Jesus is the gate. And so unless you call on the name of Jesus, unless you have heard the gospel of Jesus, unless you know that Jesus is the Savior and that Jesus is the only sufficient Savior, there is no way for you to be reconciled with God. As a matter of fact, if, if that were true, the most the, the worst thing that God could have told us to do, the most ungracious thing that God could have told us to do is the Great Commission. 
It would, be, it would be hate for us to go to the ends of the earth and, and share the gospel if they were going to be saved if we didn't come. No, we must go because outside of Christ, there is no hope. Because the general revelation, because what we see in the world around us, what we have in our conscience is not enough. It is clouded by sin. It is dead in sin. It is blinded in sin. And so we aren't able to see that Christ is the way. And so we must go. Noting the, in, the inadequacy of general revelation, we had to have something more. We had to have something more. We had to have God tell us specifically how we could be right with him. Though we see him everywhere, though we know he is everywhere, though we know that he is powerful and wise and the creator of all things, we had to know specifically how it is that we could get to him. And that's how we get to the other part of Revelation. That's the specific Revelation. And the best way for us to think about specific Revelation is in our Bibles. That's how God has given it to us. And if you think about it, this was the most brilliant way for God to give it to us, isn't it? If you just pass it down through stories, the stories change. If you give it into pictures, then, well, most of the generations didn't have pictures. But what is always preserved? What do... What are civilizations remembered by? What, how are records kept? They're all kept through literature, right? And so God gave it to us because it doesn't change. And God gave it to us so that we wouldn't lose it. And God gave it to us this way so that it would endure forever and so that it could be distributed to the ends of the earth. It's the most brilliant medium uh, possible. And it's really the only one that would even make sense. And so when we think about specific revelation, when you think about general revelation taking a step further, right? So where general revelation was, uh, was universal in scope, in other words, everybody can see it and everybody can get it, when we talk about specific revelation, it's just given to specific people at specific times for specific purposes. We think about Abraham and God comes to him, it's a specific person, and he reveals himself to him specifically, right? We think about Moses on Mount Sinai, and on Mount Sinai you have Moses and he gets the Ten, the Ten Commandments and he's specifically dealing with Moses at a specific time. We think about the, uh, Christ and the incarnation, and he's speaking in the same way. At the same time, it's also specific in substance. It tells us not just that God is big, but that God has come as Christ. It tells us not just that, that God is wise, but that God has given us an on the cross. It tells us not just that God is there, but what God's purposes are and what God's will is and what uh, God's desires are. Somehow people have become convinced that, the, the, that just in creation and things like that is enough. But then the truth is, is that just shows how sinful we are. Seeing God in creation and how glorious he is there should drive us to our Bibles where God actually tells us who he is. And where God actually reveals himself specifically so that we can know just how mighty he is and how good he is and how gracious he is and how beautiful he is and how wise he is and, and how he has come after us. Can you imagine seeing God out there and not wanting to know everything that he has said to us? It doesn't, it's, not, it's not even sensible. So we know that it is specific in substance, that God loves us so much that he didn't just vaguely reveal himself, but he wrote us specific letters, specific words. So that we could know the specifics about him. Some of the ways that he's done that is through personal encounters. Think about Abraham and Moses, Daniel's dreams. He's done this through mighty acts and delivering Israel in the Red Sea. And then them later writing it down and uh, the Passover that takes place. All of these incredible ways that God has, has spoken through mighty acts throughout the, 
the scriptures. We've seen this through propositional revelation. In other words, we have Paul sitting down and writing letters and writing these, these very propositional thoughts down. We see this in the incarnation, in Jesus himself. John tells us in chapter 1 that, he, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word is Christ. That Christ himself is the Word. He is the ultimate revealing of God, the ultimate special revelation of God. And when we talk about the, the effectiveness of special revelation, it's completely different. See, the effectiveness of special revelation depends on the response. If you take what he has and you believe it and you place your faith in it, then you can experience joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and true enlightenment, salvation forever, eternal life. And if you reject it, then you will be held to a higher standard of culpability. In Matthew 11, it says that for those that have heard the word of God and rejected it, for those that have heard that Jesus is the Christ and still reject him, that it will be worse for them at judgment than it is for Sodom. And so it can either be your greatest joy or it can be your, your greatest detriment, depending upon your response. And so this evening as we finish, I would just ask you, how will you respond? How, you, how will you respond? How seriously do you take God speaking to you? How seriously do you take God speaking to you through the things that we see in creation, through the conscience that he has written on your soul, to the spe special word that he has given us so that we can know him personally? Let me pray for us tonight and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself just so that we know we can call you Father.